The stigma of sideline abuse is a chief concern and serious decline of grassroots rugby referees uh, reports, writes Joseph Pearson for Stuff. The decline in rugby's match officials throughout the community game is seen as a serious concern when provincial unions and referee associations are scrambling to appoint referees to fixtures each week. Most are unpaid volunteers. They give up their spare time to officiate all Mm. levels from junior rugby up to senior premier grades. So just why? have referee numbers been decreasing? There is no game without the referee, is there? Ian Dallas is uh, the Wellington Rugby Referees Chairman for 21 years. He joins us. Ian, kia ora. Uh, Good afternoon. How are you? What's good, thank you. What's going on here, Ian? What is happening? Well, there is a a number of factors really uh, at the bottom of this. You know, society is obviously changing. People are, are working longer hours, including weekends as well. So that certainly has an impact. Um, but also uh, the impact of sideline abuse, particularly uh, when it goes ongoing over the years. Uh, some referees are, are saying, well, we're just not going to take that anymore and I'm going to give up. So it certainly has an impact. But there are other reasons as well. Yeah. I'm just going to focus on sideline abuse for a minute because that is a really sad part of it, isn't it, if you get affected by abuse that much? And I was just wondering, in the 21 years that you have been refereeing the scene, what have you seen? Has sideline behaviour worsened? Is it just, does it come and go? What is it? Um, I think it's always been there. I I started refereeing in 1989 and... I wasn't particularly conscious of it back then, but there were times when um, it rose its head and I and I ejected spectators from the paddock um, or the surrounds. Um, but I think in the last 10 or 15 years, it, it, it certainly uh, had a higher profile. I don't know whether it's been social media or uh, whether okay. the other media has, has highlighted as well, but it's, it's always been there. Um, but I think maybe today... A lot of people don't think there's any consequences to what they say and, and just happy to shout stuff out that's absolutely uh, mm. not helpful. Chester, mm. what do you mm. think? Well, I, I've been... I coached schoolboy rugby for about 12 years, so I had okay. to take my turn running around grossly overweight trying to keep, keep up with the kids um, and being abused all over the place for everything I didn't see and all the rest of it. I've also been the incredibly zealous... Uh, parent and coach on the sideline screaming at the referee, so I can see both. But we've seen rapid decline in numbers playing rugby. So we're going to and and we have seen rapid decline in numbers available for refereeing as well. It's a bit of a thankless task in in relation to rugby. I suppose in any sport, everyone's an expert. You know, everyone's got a view on everything, and they're prepared to share it. Um, if they've if they've got an interest enough to go and stand on the sideline, they're not going to stand their mum. They're going to say what they mm. think, and unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, I think that's the nature of it. Certainly, you know, the, the really the comical um, comments, which aren't abusive, but it can be quite humorous, are great to listen to the the clever wit and that sort of stuff. But but the loudmouth um, swearing, abuse, and all of that sort of stuff isn't flash, and you need people on the sidelines to police it. Ian, yeah, I, I think it's. We don't want people to lose their passion. That's the first thing. And and then it's often not uh, the abuse during the game or the shouting out of comments during the game because often a, a referee is so busy concentrating on the game he doesn't hear a lot of it anyway. It's actually at the end of the game. Mm. Um, right. When some of these people have appeared to come yeah. up and stand in a referee's face and uh, 
say all kinds of things, and that's when mm. it really becomes personal. It's hurtful. Yeah, and, I can get that. Uh, yeah, I've seen that. Uh, yeah. And it's not acceptable. They're absolutely not acceptable when that happens. Georgie? Yeah, I, I've, I've genuinely seen examples of that um, at my stepson's rugby games. And and I also think it's um, no no surprise these guys are giving up their, um, you know, shucking in the towel because why would you give up your Saturday mornings um, standing in the freezing cold when you're going to be abused but sometimes the the, the behaviour from some of the parents is quite cringeworthy <laughs> and the language can be fairly foul and I, I end up feeling sorry for the kids thinking they must be quite embarrassed um, to see their parents bailing up the ref at half time or at the end of the game or swearing and shouting from the from the sidelines and I think rugby probably risks losing um players to to other sports mm. now uh ian uh new zealand rugby does have uh because it's been flagged as a issue of concern because you do want uh referees um there's an initiative called be in the game be in the game campaign is that right uh yes yeah, so nzr and also local provincial unions have done these programs over the years and they've all been uh pretty good tell me just before you go what makes a good referee? Uh, someone who loves the game, whatever whatever the mm-hmm. sport they're refereeing. Um, someone who can uh, listen and talk to people. Someone who enjoys helping people and enjoy their game. Um, you know, I've always talked about it being the best seat in the house. And yeah. at these lower levels, you can help and semi-coach the players through a game and, and get them to really enjoy you know, their 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 80 minutes of, of rugby. Uh, so someone who can do that, probably maybe a little bit thicker skinned, <laughs> um, hopefully, um, because you know, you know, as uh, one of your other people have said, you know, everyone's an expert or thinks they want to offer something towards the game and and know the law. So you've got to be able to generally ignore that. And so if you're, you're that too sensitive, um, probably not going to be the best referee. So. Of that elk. Yeah, and I can imagine, Ian, uh, there, there must be some real uh, local referee legends around the country, right? Oh, absolutely. We've got one who's in his 80s and is still refereeing. Oh, wow. <laughs> who's that? Uh, his name is Rex Ward. He's the, the father of the manager of the uh, Hurricanes team. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and he's been a, a still refereeing, unbelievable, and even turns up to our, our fitness testing show. He shows up <laughs> a lot of our younger boys. That's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> It's, it is an amazing story. <laughs> awesome. Go, go, Rex Ward. Yeah. Hey, Ian, yep. uh, kia ora. Thank you for your time. Uh, you're most welcome. That is Ian Dallas here, the Wellington Rugby Referees Chairman. Uh, he went doing it for 29 years now. So you you do see a bit of this on the sidelines yourself, Georgie. I, I honestly do. I've Gosh. been quite taken aback by yeah. it. But, um, and it is what what um, Ian's just said about it being an important role. And I've seen that too, where the ref is so integral in the game and a kid gets knocked or his confidence is low and he'll give him, you can see him having a bit of a, you know, giving him a bit of a pep talk and he bounces back and it's really lovely to see. So these yeah. people should, I think the people on the sidelines need to shut up, frankly. Mm. But word mm. of advice, eh? Just, uh, just sort of uh, tie high for a bit and just, just chill out a bit. Yeah, cool, Dan. Yeah. Go for a walk. Mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, fourteen to five. The panel are NZ National. Uh, Graham says I was at the Wellington Town Hall for the Beatles concert, and now I know why the Town Hall is condemned as an earthquake risk. The, bu- <laughs> the building rocked that night. Forget the singing. The decibel level was off 
the scale. Gosh, it sounds wow. like quite a uh, quite an extraordinary uh, evening. Uh, talking to the Beatles uh, on this day in 1964, they played their first ever show in New Zealand at the Wellington Town Hall. Now, a law change is needed to make it easier to dismiss highly paid staff who are underperforming, the New Zealand Initiative says. In a new report, the think tank calls for the removal of unjustified dismissal provisions for those in senior management roles earning more than $250,000 a year. Now, currently, all employees in this country have a right to take a personal grievance if they are dismissed unfairly and without good reason. So an interesting idea. More uh, on this is report author and New Zealand Initiative Chairman Roger Partridge. Roger, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So th- tell us a little bit about this. What's, the, what's, what's behind this? Well, I think we've all experienced the difference between a C-grade and an A-grade manager. Um, and they may very well be the difference between business success or failure, between preserving the jobs of vulnerable workers or, um, or losing them. And in 2014, the Productivity Commission reported that the poor quality of the country's managerial cap- capabilities were contributing to New Zealand's low productivity growth. <laughs> so the reason behind this uh, policy recommendation is to think about how we can improve the country's productivity because a, we improve productivity, we improve wages. It's a very interesting idea, and I, <laughs> I'm sure, and certainly not um, speaking of being at RNZ, but others, they might identify managers who aren't uh, perhaps <laughs> you know, the best or uh, what they think is um, performing poorly. And I understand that Australia, high income earners are automatically excluded from the Fair Work Act's unfair dismissal regime unless an applicable award or enterprise agreement confers unfair dismissal rights. So in short, Aussie have this rule. That's right. And if you th- anybody that can think back to the 1970s, there were no personal grievance procedures back then. Uh, employers could, could um, um, dismiss employees on, um, on their contractual notice. Now, nobody likes the idea of vulnerable workers being unjustifiably dismissed. And to prevent that, the personal grievance procedure came in first for ordinary workers. And then the Bolger government in 1991 extended it to all employees. But there's a problem in, 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 in applying the unjustified dismissal procedures to senior managers because they, uh, they have an impact on the performance of the business and they, that, 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 there's a risk that if they're not performing well, that that will impact on vulnerable workers. So you've got this paradox that laws introduced to protect the interests of vulnerable workers may be jeopardising their jobs. Georgie, what do you think? I actually love this idea. I, I would argue that the um, you've, you've sort of suggested that it should be done for people, high earners, quantified it as 250k. I would argue that it should be somewhat lower. I think there's a lot of um, problematic middle managers, management managers in our public sector. Do you think? Hundred percent. hundred percent. There's also some great ones, but um, I I can. You think sound quite of, passionate about this. I am actually. This one really got me thinking. I, I think this is a great idea. There is no justification for not doing this. Chester, mm. uh, mm. I I I tend to agree. I think that the people. Well, when you look at a stable full of managers and you can look at how their staff are responding, you're looking at the productivity, you can tell that they're a good and they're a bad and they're an indifferent. It's really hard to get rid of those who 
don't want to do anything mm. or, or uh, above and beyond or only meet the target and that's it or near enough is good enough and they stick out like the proverbial and they must certainly um, affect the efficacy of the of the business that they're working in um, and I can't see what, why you wouldn't do that. Uh, it, it, it really is, you know, if you're, if you're earning a salary of that size, then you've got to be, um, you've got to be able to show that you're doing the top job. So is it, where did the salary threshold come from, Roger? Well, you're, you're, Australia has a threshold of $150,000. That's better. Um, it adjusts each year with movements in the median income. Why, don't you, why don't you agree with 150000 well, 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 there was a, a private member's bill in 2016 which proposed this idea and, and there was a lot of pushback against it in the select committee. And so rather than take that, uh, take that opposition head on, we, we have, we're recommending that we lift the threshold to, to sidestep the opposition. And $250,000 is the entry-level income for a Minister of the Crown. And of course... They can be dis- they serve at the prime minister's pleasure and can be dismissed just because the prime minister's had a change of mind. There's no need for her to justify her decision, and that seems to us to set a good precedent and set a good threshold for this sort of law change. Mm. So that that rule operates all the way through Parliament, really, doesn't it? It does. It does. So, so if you're if you're you may be earning way less than a hundred k, and find out that. You're not. Uh, you haven't got a job anymore. Depending right. on. Very interesting idea, Roger. Thank you for coming on the panel to explain it for us. My pleasure. Uh, that you. is report author and New Zealand Initiative chairman Roger Partridge. Uh, one here, Wallace. When I first started in employment law, my hypothesis was that bad management was often due to people moving slowly upwards without real training. This was borne out in my experience. Uh, a bit on refereeing too. My 13-year-old was improving school grade netball and made one bad call early in the game. The opposing coach walked up and down the sidelines shouting that he needed to be taken off. Needless to say, we had words <laughs> after the game. Eight to five, the panel RNZ National. Finally, should New Zealand be officially renamed Aotearoa? It was always a talking point, and this week Winston Peters took the issue with the use of the name, saying New Zealand First would not put the name New Zealand on the endangered species list. Well, with us now is a, an expert on the name Aotearoa, and is a representative of the country. Dr Dan Hikaroa is Senior Lecturer at the, the University of Auckland. He's the Culture Commissioner for the New Zealand National Commission for UNESCO, Dr Hikaroa Tenakwe. First off, um, well, what does Aotearoa actually mean? Well, the most widespread uh, understanding of Aotearoa means land of the long white cloud. It's the one we all grew up with. It's the one we know. Um, and the reason I, I chose to answer it that way is mm. there, is some, uh, there are other variants in what the name could mean. And I think that's one of the right. beauties of, of Māori knowledge is that uh, the, move, the more versions there are of something, kind of the more important that thing is, is said to be. Uh, but but there, are, there are also other names, Māori uh, names for New Zealand, like for both for the North and the South Island, right? Absolutely. And mm. of course, uh, one, one clear distinction that needs to be made is that Aotearoa 
uh, never referred to the South Island. It only was only right. ever named for the North Island. And of course, we have other um, names: Iko Maui for the North Island, Te Waka Maui for the South Island, Te Waipounamu for the South Island, and there are many more. Mm. Dan, I'll get our uh, panelists to jump on on this. Uh, Georgie, what's uh, what do you think? I mean, I'm comfortable with changing the name of the country. I just think we have far bigger fish to fry at the moment and far bigger things to to focus on. But I, I think it will be an interesting debate given what the name Aotearoa actually means and having that needing to be inclusive of, of both islands um, and, and that historic meaning of whatever word we choose to use to, to name our country. Chester? I would change it in an eye blink regardless of the other fish and um, why we would continue to use a a reference to some other country on the other side of the world and then why we would stick with the North Island and the South Island. I'm buggered if I know. I'm completely with you there. Um, But Dan, um, would Aotearoa be fit for purpose? Is it the right word uh, to use or is there another version or another option? Yes, so um, I I won't give a definitive answer on whether it is the right one to Mm. use. Uh, You know, the the name was was attributed to the wife of Kupi, Kuramarotini, when they first um, encountered land. And actually before you see land, you see clouds. And she is said to have said, heao, heao. You know, a cloud, a cloud, a long white cloud. Hmm. Although, you know, in, in, in modern terms and in modern usage, Aotearoa has come to mean New Zealand. And if language hmm. truly evolves through time, uh, you know, we had the, we had the, uh, Trans- uh, sorry, our, our rugby was an Aotearoa championship. I'm hearing right. politicians and other people just referring to Aotearoa. Um, we would need to have a discussion, though, because we wouldn't want um, to exclude uh, our, our cousins down in the South Island. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, idea, isn't it? And it's one that's come up again. Uh, could it could it, could it be Dan uh, Aotearoa New Zealand? Well, I think th- that could be an option for yeah. debate, and I think think that's the important thing. And so I, I slightly disagree with with that uh, first comment. Although I, I do agree there are bigger fish to fry, but I think also um, having your national identity. Linked with, as as Chester said, a, you know, a very small province in a in a in a country way up in the northern hemisphere um, is, is not where our headspace is mm. at, and so I don't think it needs to be the only thing we're talking about. But I think it is one of the things we should be talking about. Mm. Chester, a bit of pushback too uh, for uh, you getting rid of getting rid of uh, New Zealand wholesale. I've got to say. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised, but um, that's okay. I take it on the chin. <laughs> I've yeah, got bigger fish to fry as well. What I will say is, you know, I I would have um, a high level of comfort of not having New Zealand appear in a new name. That, that's my yep. personal opinion. I um, but what I what I think is really important is that we have the discussion. We have a mature uh, discussion around what it might, what a new name might mean. Surely we can't use three words for the name of a country. No, just stick with Aotearoa, I'd say. It just, I mean, it just makes a mockery of the whole reason why you would change it if you leave it in there mm. as an alternative. It's a little bit like Mount Egmont and Taranaki. Right. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And one, well, I suppose an interesting, you know, another observation is that when, whenever, uh, whenever you see the haka, that is unequivocally New Zealand, and I suppose if, if we had a name that was unequivocally, mm. you know, identifying with us um, through through the original Indigenous culture, but now that's something that all New Zealanders uh, align with, 
Dr. Hikarawa Kiora, thank you for your time. Lovely to have you on the panel. And George Stiliano, Chester Burrows, Kiora to you both. You've been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much. I'm going to leave you with a bit of Beatles. Here we go. See you tomorrow. you got that something. I think you'll understand.